Good morning, Veritas Church. How good it is to be with you again. I can tell you I've been praying for you, as I'm sure you've been praying for me, and I count it a great privilege to again open God's Word together as uh, we have heard it read to us just a moment ago. But I would invite you now to turn, if you haven't already, in your copy of God's Word to um, Proverbs chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible and you're using uh, one of the ones on the seat back in front of you, I took a peek, and we're going to be on page 495, if that helps get you to where you need to be. Just a moment ago, we heard this portion of Scripture read with our ears. Let's listen again as we hear it. Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Let's pray and let's ask the Lord for his help and his aid as we consider his word together. Our God and our Father, we do come before you humbly and with much faith asking for the great need and the much needed aid of your Spirit. Lord, we acknowledge that there is much we do not know in so many ways that we think that we are self-sufficient. And in acknowledging that, Father, we ask that you would open our understanding to know your holy book. We pray that you would reveal to our souls the great counsel that is found in your wisdom and your instruction. We ask that you would help us, that you would illuminate our darkness, and Lord, that you would bring saving knowledge of Christ, that we might rest in his finished work, and that we might rejoice in your fatherly care of us. Lead us in truth and draw us to Christ this morning, we pray. Amen. There are certain points in each of our own lives that are significant moments of change. They are those circumstances, uh, those particular events, perhaps even those decisions that become the shaping influence, the, the shaping factors sometimes for decades to come. And there are those certain points in the life of a church wherein the, they are significant moments of change. They are the sort of transitions and decisions that end up becoming those historic markers in the history and the life of a church. And so as we recognize that and consider that in a very tangible and real way, it would be quite proper to then ask if that is true, if these seasons and moments of change are inevitable, and they are so influential in our lives and within our church, is there then some sort of secret path or knowledge that we need in order to make a, a good decision? Is there some sort of place for emotions, for desires, for feelings, what place should they play within our decision-making, 
As we think about this, should we be looking for signs? Should we be looking for miracles to direct us, to help us make good decisions as we consider what lies before us? And I think practically as we come to the end of one year and we anticipate the beginning of a next, how should we think about all that lies behind us and anticipate all that lies ahead of us? What is astonishing to me is that the Bible stresses the sort of guidance that we need to navigate these seasons, that it is remarkably unremarkable. The sort of guidance that you and I need in these very moments of change, in these very uh, kind of seasons and pivots of one year to a next, the very thing that we need is unremarkably plain in one sense. You may think that you would need some sort of secret wisdom, some sort of mystical power, maybe even some sign or miraculous help to direct your steps. But what we read here before us in Proverbs chapter 3 is something that is remarkably straightforward. Because the counsel that's given here in verses 5 through 8 is to trust the Lord and fear the Lord. That's it. In considering all that lies before us, we are exhorted to trust the Lord and to fear the Lord. And like so much of Scripture and so much of the instruction within the book of Proverbs, this is simple but profound. It is one of those ironies that is both so plain, trust the Lord, fear the Lord, but so profound and how we understand this and apply this to our lives. Personally, I have found this portion of scripture probably much like many of you to be tremendously helpful in this way. I do not intend to say anything new to us this morning, but perhaps something that is very familiar and the necessary reminders that we need to order our lives rightly as God would desire. And so really, regardless if your year has been marked by losses or gains, if the year ahead is marked by uncertainty or, or anticipation, the word of the Lord remains the same for all of us. Trust the Lord and fear the Lord. So let's just meditate on these two themes this morning as we close out this year and as we prepare prayerfully for the year that's ahead of us. Let's consider just, first of all, this first admonition to trust the Lord. This is the theme of verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. and Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. To trust the Lord is one of the most often repeated exhortations given to God's people within the scriptures. One, because of how frequently we are tempted to trust elsewhere. And so we just simply need to be redirected like blinders on a horse, reminded, trust the Lord. Don't trust, trust the Lord. Don't look, trust the Lord. But secondly, we, fee, we read of this reminder so often, not only because of the frequency of how we're tempted to look elsewhere, but because of the failure to trust God in the garden is what brought about this whole mess in the first place. The reason that the world is that the way that it is. The reason that you look at your life and there's this constant gnawing sense of futility and frustration, disappointment, 
enjoyment, disappointment, enjoyment, longing for something more, is because of the failure to, to trust God at his word in the garden originally. And so we are exhorted all over the pages of scripture, whether by direct admonition or by illustration, to trust the Lord. Now, what does it really mean to trust the Lord? Because it's one thing to say that and to even say amen and to close in prayer and say, let's go into this year and trust the Lord. But what does that mean? What does it look like? What do you imagine trusting God would look like in the life of a Christian? What's the mental image or the character or the attributes or the trajectory of a life that you would say, that man, that woman, they trust the Lord. Do you imagine that trusting God is just some sort of blind faith? I don't know anything, but I'm just trusting the Lord. And that doesn't make any sense, but I'm trusting the Lord. Do you imagine it's a blind faith, or do you imagine it's some sort of degree of zeal that a person has? Where like that person kind of trusts the Lord, but that person really trusts the Lord. How do you know? What does it mean to us to trust the Lord? Must we just believe more or believe harder? Thankfully, the scriptures point us in a different direction. Notice that the exhortation here to trust the Lord is set off by the contrasting call right below it to not lean on your own understanding there in the second half of verse 5. Now, you probably know this parallel Emphasis is a, is a teaching model common to, to Hebrew poetry. The point is made when we consider both statements alongside each other and what one is saying and what one is not saying, and we're able to get some better sense of the thrust of the instruction. Trust in the Lord. Do not lean on your own understanding. By laying these two statements alongside each other, we have a better, clearer picture of what it means to trust the Lord. Specifically, we are meant to notice that the words trust and lean, they should conjure up the same image. To trust something or someone is to throw your full weight upon them, saying, I'm all in. (laughs) I'm committed here. I'm trusting you. Likewise, to, to lean onto a friend's shoulder, to lean into them, is implying a degree of trust. The two are parallel, saying the same thing. And the emphasis here is that instead of leaning into our own understanding or how we may see a particular circumstance, what we're called to do is trust upon the Lord. But thankfully, the teaching of Scripture and the call here in Proverbs is is not just some generic call to just trust. We're given two specific ways in which we are exhorted to trust the Lord. How do we trust the Lord? Well, first of all, we're told in verse 5 that we are to trust the Lord with all our heart. If we're to know anything about trusting the Lord, the counsel of scripture would call us to say, trust him with all your heart. I think we're all pretty familiar with what it means to do something with all your heart. There's not much unpacking that needs to happen there. Likewise, we know what it means to hear, like, they just have no heart for this. Or to hear it said, like, they're really doing this half-heartedly. We understand what's being said there. We understand 
the, the language moves beyond just some organ that's beating in their cavity. We're, we're understanding it has something to do with the desire. It has something to do with the, the very effort and energy of what they're putting their hand to or not putting their hand to. So to trust the Lord with all of your heart, we could say it's full devotion. It is this sense of without hesitation, without reserve, that it is this glad-hearted confidence in God alone. I'm trusting the Lord with all my heart. Well, if that is true, then it would be absolutely necessary to be honest with ourselves and ask a, a very important question. What is it that gives me cause to hesitate or to trust God with anything less than a whole heart? What is that? Why is that? What is it that causes me to step back and say, I'm not all in? What is it that would cause me to say, I'm somewhat half-hearted here? It's when we falter between two options. Will I trust God or will I trust my own understanding? And in that moment right there, at that intersection of trust God, trust myself, in that hesitation, in that hesitancy, that always stems from what I think I know about the situation. I hear God's instruction, but then in the back of my mind, but I know, I've seen, it's my assumption, and we hold up. How often are we prone to make foolish and costly life decisions in the areas of relationships or finances or comforts or risks based upon our own feelings or our own experiences about a matter instead of what's given to us plainly in God's word. A student may feel that it is necessary to cheat on this exam in order to get the A. They've determined that the risk and the moral implication of those actions are worth it because the A is necessary in this class. Think about the ramifications of the scholarship and the opportunities. Therefore, I feel this is necessary in this moment. Not for everybody, not all, but right here. A child may feel compelled to lie to their parents because they know the consequences of what they've done. And they feel that lying in this one instance would be better off than what would potentially come in the truth coming to the surface. A husband may feel that he would be happier if he was divorced from his wife. A wife may feel justified in slandering her husband. But if we think that our feelings or our desires are the best lens to make sense of our circumstances, we have deeply misunderstood the teaching of the Bible concerning the human condition. We have deeply misunderstood the priority that the scriptures place upon our feelings, our perceptions, our own understanding. Because so often what we find is that we are a mess of contradiction. Proverbs tells us that our feelings are unreliable and that most often our mass of knowledge and experience 
is so limited. It is so contextualized by where we live, the time that we live in. It is not fully illuminated by the counsel of God's wisdom and often just misinformed. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. How many tombstones could grievously have that written upon them? They thought this was right. Their course of life, their decisions, their priorities seemed right to them. And it's led here. Proverbs 28, 26 says, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. If you scour through just even the book of Proverbs, you will find many exhortations like this reminding us, warning us, counseling us, pleading us to say, do not lean on your own understanding. Trust the Lord. What we're saying is that if we are going to trust the Lord with all our hearts, it would require of us that we are first submitted to the authority and the goodness of God. Particularly as he reveals himself in his word. Wisdom simultaneously teaches us that we have to lay hold of two truths at the same time. As fallen human beings... We have to lay hold of two truths at the same time. One, that the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth comes understanding. That's Proverbs 2. If you want true wisdom, if you want understanding, it comes from the mouth of the Lord. So we hold on to that, saying, okay, that's the source. The other thing that we're holding on to at the same time is, okay, I know this, but I know in my own heart that I am prone to seek wisdom somewhere else. So I'm saying the source of all wisdom comes from God, and at the same time, I am so prone to look elsewhere. That is something that has to constantly be illuminating our days and our lives, recognizing that propensity within each of us. So how do we walk in wisdom if both of those things are true? The Lord gives wisdom, but I am so prone to look elsewhere. How do we live? The prayer of the psalmist is a wonderful place to begin. Psalm 86, 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I might walk in truth. That's this one. And unite my heart to fear your name. Teach me because you are the source of truth. And at the same time, I, I recognize this divided heart within me. So would you please unite my heart to not be a divided heart? Because I want to trust you with all my heart. So teach me that I might fear your name. Something that's going to come up again. Really what the scriptures are pressing upon us is that the true barometer for our trust in God is not your zeal. It's your humility. The true barometer for your trust in God and his ways is your humility. Because a genuine trust in God will be seen in a desire within us for his ways and in the acknowledgement that his ways are best. That is the person who trusts God. They humble themselves and say, not my will, but yours be done. 
not my desires, but what you would desire. That's trusting the Lord. And this is further clarified in the parallel statement of verse 6. Not only are we to trust the Lord with all our hearts, but we're instructed we are to trust the Lord in all our ways. Well, this is important. Because how often are we prone to pride ourselves in our ability to trust the Lord in some of our ways? And we kind of look at our task list and we divide it up, thinking, I'm just going to have to trust God for this one over here, but okay, this one I can handle. Let's put this over on this side of the paper, and this will be the prayer list over here, because I can't handle that one. How often do we treat God as some sort of specialist to whom we go to for the, only the really big stuff? Can I get referred out for this one? Because I, I need the specialist that God can provide here. I'm cool here, so Lord, help me here. The call here is more than acknowledging just the generic sense of God's lordship over all of our religious life, because what it's saying is that we are to bring God's truth to bear upon every aspect of our lives. How we organize, lead, and serve our families. We need his wisdom, his truth, in all those ways. How we pursue our education and what we choose to fill our minds with, we need to trust him in all those ways. For our careers, how we organize our finances, our friendships, our place within his church, all of this we're saying, trust the Lord in all your ways. Furthermore, to acknowledge God in all your ways, don't think for a minute that this is more, this is nothing more than just a, a hat tip in God's direction. I'd like to acknowledge God for his good kindness and help in this. Check that box and move on. No, to acknowledge God in all our ways means that in the throes of life, we turn our thoughts to him and we say, what do I know of my God? In seasons of abundance, in seasons of lack, in days of tremendous sorrow, in days of exuberant joy, when we are confused, when we don't know what to do, we stop, we acknowledge our God, and we say, what do we know of him? How are my ways, you know, this little moment in time, how are my ways illuminated by what I know of this God? Instead of trying to figure out God through my circumstances, what we're saying is, God, I want you to illuminate my circumstances by the immensity of who you are so that I might trust you. That is a significant difference. What are we to call to mind when we think of God? Beloved, we could spend eternity, and I bet we will, meditating upon the wonderful attributes of God. There's one area you want to grow in in this coming year. I would commend that to you. Pick up something like God Is by Mark Jones, where you can spend just devotionally three or four pages in the morning thinking upon a particular attribute of God and meditating upon all that he is, that you might grow in this trusting the Lord at all times, in all ways. We might consider God in his sovereignty, 
Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in the heavens and in the earth, the seas and all the deeps. That means is there is not one detail of your life that the Lord has not willed, that there is nothing outside of his knowledge or power. And so we say, okay, he is sovereign. I'll trust him. We might call to mind that he is good. That in his sovereignty, he is not working to crush his people, nor is he so callous that he just deals with this flippantly, but that he is good. All his ways are good, that every sovereign detail is framing up this testimony that will give to him eternal praise for how good he is. Therefore, I will trust him in all his ways. We ought to call to mind and remember that he's faithful. The psalmist declaration, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Take up and read the very testimony of our God that he is faithful to his people. And as you head into a year that you know nothing about, you can say, well, I know this, the Lord is faithful. I'll trust him in all my ways. And we could go on acknowledging God's might, his holiness, his ability to provide, his love, his mercy. And when we do, we will find that in all our ways, we have reason to trust the Lord with all our heart. The problem is not God, it is me. And so when my ways are illuminated by who God is and what he has done, the response is, I will trust him with all my heart and all my ways. So if that is true, let's ask ourselves, what are the ways in which God is working in our lives to magnify his trustworthiness? Meaning, where are those areas that you just aren't trusting? With all your heart, in all your ways. Those are the very intersecting moments that God is seeking to work in your life to show you and prove to you that he is worthy of being trusted. What is he doing within Veritas Church that we might acknowledge his sufficiency and his worth? That is God's people could say unanimously with one voice, he is worthy to be trusted in all our ways, with all our heart. May I just further suggest one way that we could grow in this is by writing these things down and praying that God would show himself strong on your behalf. And what you'll have after, after some period of time in writing those things down is the very written testimony of God's faithfulness in your life. These are the areas where I need to trust the Lord. And what you will find in God's kind providence, the very areas that he shows himself to be trustworthy. In fact, that's exactly what is promised to us in the last half of verse 6. It says that our paths will be made straight before us. A straight path is not an easy path. Don't misread or misapply that. A straight path is set in contrast to the crooked path. That's the path of the person that's described in Proverbs as somebody who's wicked, who does not trust God, who does not honor God, who mocks God, their path, their way, as we sang this morning in Psalm 1, is the way of the wicked. But the one who trusts in the Lord will have a straight path, meaning a path of righteousness, 
and that God is able to draw a straight path even in the midst of a fallen people because of his great power and mercy. As we trust the Lord for who he is and what he has promised, we are going to discover his wonderful ability to make his path straight before us. But the exhortation here is not simply to trust the Lord. There's something else given to us. Let's consider the second really call or admonition to fear the Lord. This is found in verses 7 through 8, where we read, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. The fear of the Lord is one of the great themes of Scripture. You're going to find it repeated throughout Proverbs here. And what you're going to find is that this fear of the Lord is really the gateway to possessing wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord, please understand, is not panicked terror. It's an odd reverence. It is this fear that is distinct really from the terror that is described in the Bible, the terror of the Lord that it is experienced by those who do not know God as their father. There is a reason to be terrified of the Lord because he is the righteous judge. But for the disciple, for the Christian, for the one who has placed their faith in Christ, the one who's saying, I want to trust the Lord, it's not terror, it's fear of the Lord. It's reverential awe. It's to stand in wonder and amazement and be humbled at who God is and what he's revealed. And as you read through your Bible, you'll come across to more than 100 references to the fear of God in this positive sense of faith and obedience. It's always spoken of in a positive light. To fear God or to be God-fearing is really this stock image. If you were to search fear of God image and you come to your Bible and could do some sort of image search and all the teaching that is there, what would come up is this stock image of fear God. That's what it means to be someone who follows after God. And it's oftentimes laid right alongside in comparison of someone who does not fear God. It's this parallelism saying, fear God, this is what it looks like. This is not the fear of God. Even in the narrative portions of the Old Testament, we'll read this particular king feared God. And then you lay it alongside the next chapter, this particular king did not fear God. And you lay aside their lives and their decisions and those consequences and we are taught by implication, fear God, for it is good, it is wise. This means that to fear God is this fundamental quality of those who have an experiential knowledge of who this God is. You know something of this God, as it's revealed here, and your response is to fear him. But just like with trusting the Lord, we need to ask a similar question. What's that mean? Because these two exhortations can roll off our tongues in very fluent Christianese, trust the Lord, fear the Lord. But do we know what they mean? Have they pressed down into the very details of our lives? What does it mean to fear the Lord practically? What does it look like? As we anticipate the year ahead, how might you fear the Lord? What would that look like, sound like? Our text would point us in two directions. There are many that we could go, but our meditation this morning is going to cause us to think in two ways. We fear the Lord, 
and we must fear the Lord, verse 7, more than self. We fear the Lord more than self. And oftentimes the reason that we do not fear the Lord is because we honor self. Another way of saying that uh, we are so wise in our own eyes that we move forward on the basis of what we know despite what God has said. That's the epitome of being wise in your own eyes. You know something, and you move forward on the basis of that rather than what God has revealed in his word. Now, unfortunately, there's not one of us here who are immune to this. There is within each of our lives this ever-present temptation to give priority to what we know, experience, see, or feel and downplay what God has said. It's been this way from the beginning. Remember the, the teaching that's given to us in Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What this tells us is that our first parents heard the instruction of God, but they took it upon themselves and took action based upon what they could see and how they could reason. Do you see the duality and the contrast that's set up in the very first pages of Scripture? Hearing what God has revealed, but taking action upon sight, desire, reason apart from revelation you see the danger of being wise in our own eyes is the assumption that we have all the facts or at least sufficient facts that really qualify what God has said yeah it's technically there but here's the deal here's the footnote you probably didn't realize and this is why it doesn't apply to me and why it's different in this situation and that can do this end around if you follow the x and the y that's where I'm at you just didn't know that that's okay, but I know it. I know God's word says this, but here's this that I have to consider. That's the very definition of being wise in your own eyes. History is filled with the wreckage of lives who were wise in their own eyes. I love learning about military history and found the biography of Winston Churchill to be filled with all sorts of nuggets of wisdom. There's one particular moment in 1940 where there's the famous air raids over Britain. It speaks of Hermann Goring, who was the German military leader tasked with leading up the Nazi, essentially, air force during World War II. And he assumed that he had all of the facts in his preparations for the air raids of 1940. By his calculation, the RAF, that's the British Air Force, had about five to 600 planes. So he just did simple math and mapped out the attrition rate of 
British fighters and assumed that at this, this many fighters over this many days, this many losses, this is when we can go all out on England. They will have no air cover and we will rule this little island of Britain. Goring was greatly dismayed in October of that year because by his math and by his intelligence, he assumed there should be not any, not one British airplane over the skies. And he was woefully, massively, embarrassingly incorrect. And the great raids that he had planned to just simply cross the sea there and decimate England never happened, all because of the assumption that he began with in assuming there's only 500 fighters. And he had no idea how incorrect he was because he assumed all the facts. Friends, the, the best strategy and the, the most well-laid plans are absolutely pointless if you begin with the wrong starting point. To lean on your own understanding and cast aside God's clear instructions is one of the glaring warnings again and again in the book of Proverbs. And yet, how often do we assume that we have all the facts? How often do we consider ourselves to be wise in this circumstances concerning this issue, having the judgment to make the best decision because we know We assume there's no way that I'm going to be able to pay for this. And God provides. We assume there's no way this person's going to change. And God saves and God sanctifies. We assume there's no chance that this job will open up or that we will get pregnant or we can endure this hardship. God proves himself faithful. May I remind you, we are most in danger of being wise in our own eyes where you and I are most qualified. Think about it. It's so much easier to trust the Lord when you are neck deep in ignorance. I don't know how that works. I'm going to trust the Lord that he's going to fix the furnace. It's easy. But when you have years of experience in a particular matter, when you've read all the books, when you've invested your life into a particular matter, and you are now the expert in this area, the pull to lean on your own understanding is so much stronger in those areas. What are the abilities or the accomplishments that people often appreciate you for? What's the feedback that you get when people say you are so helpful in the way that you walked me through this? The wisdom, the talent, the ability. Most likely, those are the same exact areas in which you are prone to honor self and neglect to fear God. Because we love to be wise in our own eyes. This is the very weakness of strength. Did you know there's a weakness of strength? It is this right here. We must fear the Lord more than self, but the other instruction that we're given here is we must fear the Lord more than evil. It's the second portion of verse 7. We fear the Lord more than self. We fear the Lord more than evil. Now, 
The real danger, the real evil here is not simply the destruction that evil brings, but our hearts allure towards it. Evil is wrong. Evil is wicked. Evil, evil is destruction. But read through your Bibles. What is, what is the real devastation that is brought about upon men and women's lives? Is that we love evil. That's not just the presence of it. I'm attracted to that. I desire that. I will rearrange my lives financially, numerically, organizationally, so that I can have some of that because it appeals to me. That's evil. Do you realize that because of sin, we have a tendency to love what is actually evil? If that is not a category that you're thinking of, friend, I would encourage you to spend time in the scriptures and read just how prevalent that is. That there is something within us because of sin that causes us to actually turn towards evil and say, that's attractive. One of the primary indicators that we fear the Lord is going to be seen in our desire for holiness. That there is a new and growing desire to turn from evil. It's a major part of what it means to be a Christian. Because you've been converted. You've been given the spirit of God and you have new desires. And the way that those new desires are seen or that you have a growing desire to turn from those things, not perfectly, but there is a war now. Before, there was no battle. But a converted Christian now fights. They desire to turn from evil. And our turning away from evil must be seen as not just a, a turn towards better principles. It's not self-help. It's not just turning from that because your life is going to be so much better. It's not just turning towards better habits. It's not just turning towards morals, but to the Lord himself. This is huge. The difference between detached moralism and Christianity is that moralism just tries to turn away from a particular vice to a particular virtue. And there's a lot of self-effort in between that pivot. But Christianity is turning away from a particular evil and turning towards God himself, looking towards the face of Jehovah, communing with Christ and saying, I want him. Not just the gifts he brings or the virtues that he creates, I want Christ. I want to commune with the triune God. We're not seeking to define holiness simply by what we deny by what we're embracing. Both are prevalent in scripture. And if you're here and you're seeking to, to better understand what it means to be a Christian, you need to know that we're, we're not just devoted to mere principles or causes, but Christ himself. Holiness essentially means to be devoted to God. That's the very essence of Christianity, that how can a person who has no knowledge of God, who seeks to suppress the truth, suddenly become a worshiper of God? Well, it's going to have something to do with the holiness of God and what he does in the heart of a converted sinner. 
our desire to fear the Lord will be seen in our longing to turn away from all manner of evil and turn towards him with wholehearted devotion. It's not an impersonal, petrified fear that, that motivates us to do this. It's a, it's a reverent awe. It, it's a sober longing for God and to commune with him. And so I would ask you, as you think about your own life and you anticipate the plans and all that you have laid out for this coming year, what are the particular evils that the Holy Spirit would be convicting you of and drawing you away from and to the Lord himself? If you're someone who's prone to pause in this week in between Christmas Day and New Year's Day and reflect and anticipate, can I exhort you to just insert that into all of your meditation? What might the particular evils be that the Holy Spirit would be calling you to turn away from and turn towards? To answer that question, it's going to imply a certain awareness that there are particular temptations that you are prone to normalize which God calls evil. If you want a helpful place to begin, turn over to Colossians 3 and let's just let our minds briefly be reminded of what it is we're talking about here. Perhaps a great springboard to answer this very question as you look ahead into the year. What are the particular evils the Holy Spirit would be convicting and convincing us to turn away from as we seek to fear the Lord? Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which, indeed, you were called in one body." Can you imagine the sort of quality of life that you and I might know if we turned from such evils and walked in the newness of Christ and love and forgiveness and compassion and kindness and humility and meekness? 
Well, it would be exactly the kind of experience described in Proverbs 3.8. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Fear the Lord. Turn from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. It ought not to surprise us that when we fear the Lord, we experience the goodness of his design. That ought not be a surprise to us, but how often it is. Church, we must take every opportunity to remind ourselves, to teach our children, to explain to our neighbor that God's good authority is good for us. Healing to our flesh, refreshment to our bones, to fear God and submit to his ways, it's not oppressive, but it's health, it's refreshment, it is life as God defines life. And if you are skeptical, not simply to the existence of God, but if you are skeptical of his claim to have authority over your life, please hear this. When the Bible speaks of God as our creator, our ruler, our judge, our father, our shepherd, our king, each of these images of authority, which they are, are given to us so that we might better know the sort of good authority that God has. When we hear that he is a shepherd, we allow the word of God to define what kind of shepherd he is. When we hear that he is a judge, we allow the word of God to define what sort of authority he wields as a judge, as a father, as a lord, as a king. We don't take earthly images and project them upon God, but we say, what is God's revealed word about his authority? And the kind of authority that he has. And what we find when we come to the pages of scripture is that God calls us to repent and to believe, not to keep us from good, but to, to liberate us from the bondage of sin and to renew our entire being so that we might experience something greater than we could have ever imagined. Because his good authority is good for us. His ways are authoritative and they are healing to our flesh and refreshment to our bones. I'm willing to bet most every one of us are familiar with Psalm 23. Listen to the imagery that is there and what is implied. The Lord is my shepherd. What kind of shepherd? I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Each of those images of authority and directive force are towards good towards refreshment, towards righteousness. The commit, excuse me, the, the contentment and the satisfaction that we all long for is found right here in the fear of the Lord. And so as we look back on 2021, as we look ahead to this coming year of 22, we need to view both what lies behind us and what lies ahead of us through these dual lenses of trust the Lord, fear the Lord.
Those are, if you will, the binoculars that we are peering through, trying to make sense of life's events. One lens helping me to trust the Lord, the other lens helping me fear the Lord, that I might see rightly, that I might walk in wisdom. We trust the Lord with what he has done. Everything that we leave behind in this year, we trust him with all our hearts, not leaning on our own understanding of things. And as we anticipate what lies ahead, we trust him with all of our hearts, not leaning on our own understanding of certain matters. And how are we going to do this? By remembering and responding to who he is. Remembering his sovereignty, his goodness, his faithfulness, his fatherly care. Remember his righteousness, his eternality, his justice, his mercy. And nowhere is this more clearly seen than in the cross of Christ. For it's at the death and the resurrection of Jesus that we find the greatest display of God's worthiness to trust him and to fear him. That is where all of this comes to its pinnacle. We say, if there was ever a reason to trust the Lord and fear the Lord, and all the revelation of Scripture, surely the apex of that is at the cross. We can surely trust him. He gave his only son over to death. Not just any death, but the death of a substitute. He gave his son over to death, the innocent one for the guilty, that he might reconcile his people to himself to call them sons. What we're doing is we're, we're reasoning from the greater to the lesser here. We're taking up Paul's logic in, in Romans 8. He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Meaning, the cross proves our trust in God. If he is taking care of the most damaging, damning thing that could ever ruin your soul in the death of his son, will he not take care of this? We can trust him. And we must surely fear him. And nowhere do we see the motivation to rightly fear God in reverential awe than there at the cross. As we experience forgiveness and we learn for reals what is holiness justice mercy because we have every reason to stand in awe of him and the language of the psalmist if you lord should mark iniquities who could stand but with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared the cross is the perfect display and motivation to fear god reverential awe for what he's done with all that lies before us in this new year for all of our plans and our desires let's prayerfully ask that we might grow in two areas that we might trust the lord and then we might fear the lord so let's look to him now father we do ask in these ways that are so simple and yet very profound in the ways and the magnitude that they affect our lives lord be gracious to us as a father to children, please be compassionate towards us, knowing and remembering our frame that we are dust. Deal faithfully with us, remembering your covenant that you have 
purchased us, predestined us to adoption in love. Deal with us accordingly to how your word says that you come alongside sinners who are weak and broken, who are often misguided, those who are so prone to trust in themselves, to honor themselves, to be wise in our own eyes. Lord, we come before you as children, asking for forgiveness, asking for help, asking that through the abundance of revelation given to us in your word, that you would grow us. You would grow us in this great ability to trust you and to fear you. And Lord, would you be working in our lives and in this church in such a way that through the events that you ordain in the coming months, that you would show yourself to be a sure and worthy refuge, one that we can trust and one that we ought to fear. Make yourself a name, bring yourself glory through this church and through your providential dealings with us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.